0: Welcome to day 249 of Journey Through Scripture. Today we're going to be in Isaiah 10, verse 20 through chapter 13, and then Second Corinthians 8, verse 16 through 9, verse 5. Okay, so let's begin in Isaiah 10, verse 20. Um, here we pick up the theme of what will happen uh, one day um, after this punishment that is... Um, that is it has been declared over Jerusalem uh, and uh, to some extent as well over the northern kingdom, and we saw that part of the promise of God, part of this future hope that he holds out for his people is the remnant. And so here we have the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them. So, right, <clears throat> an army comes in, um, uh, dominates you, And then you're dependent on them. You're part of them. And so, uh, especially this is the case with Assyria, if they're, like, annexing your territory and everything. But instead, they're going to be leaning on Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, and this time in truth. Okay, so it's not going to be like what it was before. This will be genuine. A remnant will return. Whoever you heard that before, well, think of the name of Isaiah's kid, right, Uh, in chapter 7, Sha'ar Yashuv. She'ar Yashuv, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to—and here is that verse that I mentioned yesterday, because remember, the son that would be born in chapter 9, verse 6, is called the mighty God, right? The, the king, the Davidic king. Um, and here we have, we'll return uh, to the mighty God, to el Gibor. And you can see here, it's it's speaking of the Lord. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea— Okay, so right now you look out and there's the the promise given to Jacob in Genesis 32, 12, that his offspring will be as the sand of the sea has happened, um, but only a remnant of them will return. Uh, destruction is decreed. So, you know, it's hope in the future, but this future, this nearby judgment, this judgment that's closer is something that The people will go through before this is realized. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness, right? That um, uh, God's act of judgment is a function of his righteousness. he, He is rightly judging sin. For Lord Yahweh of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. So this is a complete destruction. There's no more half measures. He's going, uh, whatever you guys have experienced before of God's anger, God's wrath, it's nothing compared to what is coming. And so therefore says uh, Lord Yahweh of hosts, "O my people who dwell in Zion. So it's talking here now about Jerusalem. Be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you. So notice here we have the rod and the staff. Um, the rod, the the shevet, and the staff, the mate. And this was something that we uh, saw in chapter 9, used as uh, with the son who is born, right? Used as kind of symbols of his reign, symbols of his—he's uh, the one in charge, the government is on his shoulders, we could say. Um, and so these here, now in these chapters, are going to be symbols of god of rulership, whoever's doing the ruling. So, right here, it's the Assyrians, and it will be like the people suffered on the day in, uh, under the Egyptians. Uh, for in a very little while, my fury will come to an end. Here, fury is the same uh, expression, actually, of that that full end he spoke of doing in the midst of the earth in verse 23. They're both the word kala. So, My end will come to an end. My complete destruction will come to an end. My anger will be directed to their destruction, okay? Um, And Yahweh of hosts will wield against them, okay? This, again, is piggybacking on what we read yesterday, right? Assyria, the rod of my anger shall the, you know, the axe lift up its head against the one who wields it. Um, no, uh, you will be accountable for the wickedness that you do, even if I'm using that as an instrument of my judgment. So, um, the uh, Yahweh of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Orave. You remember yesterday when we looked at the passage about the son who would be born uh, in chapter 9, and um, we found this similar language and uh, right where... Uh, part of the rule of this son will, which you know, I think is very, um, you know, now getting bound up in this theme of remnant, return from exile, and everything. Okay, that this son will um, will take the, the 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 staff and the rod of the oppressor. Right, the, there are those two words: the mate and the shevet of the oppressor. And will break them as on the day of Midian. And there I suggested that's most likely the stories of Gideon in the book of Judges. Here we have it spelled out, right? The the rock of Oreb, which is where the two Midianite princes were put to death. Um, so just as he broke their, the rod and the staff of Midian when they were oppressing Israel, so now he will do it to Assyria because of their oppression of Israel. And his staff, the Lord's staff, the Lord's mate will be over the sea and he will lift it up as he did in Egypt. Um, Think of the the plagues, right? He's done this once for you, he will do it again. Um, And here I'll note again the comparison of um, what Israel has yet to go through at, at the time of the writing of Isaiah and the exodus back then. And so a lot of how Isaiah will explain this, as we will see today, is in terms of a new exodus. And in that day, his burden will depart from your shoulder um, and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. So here we see this, no, this notion of yoke, staff, again, all things that the uh, Davidic king of chapter 9, the son who will be born uh, will will uh, eradicate during his reign here it's saying essentially the same thing the yoke and the staff will depart from you there's the oppressors Assyrios will and here this yoke will be broken because of the fat a little bit tricky um like what what in the world does that mean um I I think as good of an explanation as any is what John Oswald suggests in his commentary the idea is that the ox is so cared for, so. Uh, comfortable that uh, both b- having toiled little and eaten much, it's so fat that the yoke just breaks off of it. Um, and then we have uh, verses 28 through 32, which denotes God passing through all these towns. Some of them are very obscure, hardly even mentioned in the Bible. Um, Ayat, Migron, okay, um, Geba we've heard of, Rama, we've heard of, tend to be around... Um, the area of Benjamin, not not surprising, Gibeah of Saul, but basically the Lord passing through and halting at Nob and shaking his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. And I'm not sure if we can be certain whether or not this is supposed to be a good thing or a bad thing. Um, in context, right, he seems to be talking less about the uh, destruction of Jerusalem. Um, right, he's talking about breaking Assyria's yoke. Right, the message to Zion is, "Do not be afraid of the Assyrians," um, and uh, and so I, I, if it's if it's sticking with that theme, then this is um, this is God defending the city. Behold, Lord Yahweh of hosts will lop off the bows with terrifying power. So here you have this the idea of. Uh, humbling those who exalt themselves, the great in height hewn down, the lofty brought low, Uh, the thickets of the forest cut down with an axe, Lebanon will fall by by the majestic one. Okay, so Lebanon being the direction from which the Assyrians come. Okay, then we get kind of like the, uh, you know, we've never really left the theme of this future Davidic king. Okay, and here we see it elaborated on some more. So we read that there will come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And remember, the though the word is is different. It's not a zemach here. It's a hotar. It sounds very much similar to what we've already um, seen. Uh, and here it's going to be elaborated more. And note, note the idea here is that it's it's not a tree, right? It's a shoot coming from the stump. It's a branch coming from the roots. Um, so it's something that uh, is not fully materialized now, but it will grow into something mighty in the future is the idea. And that branch will bear fruit. Um, and because the spirit of Yahweh will rest upon him. And of, of course we see a lot of parallels to this in the gospel, uh, in the gospels, uh, in how Jesus is described, uh, this, and that spirit will be of wisdom, understanding. You, you got these pairs, right? Counsel and might, knowledge, and fear of the Lord. His delight will be in the fear of Yahweh. He shall not judge what his eyes, by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, right? I think this is uh, speaking to the wisdom of the one doing the judging. He's He knows that there is more than meets the eye, right? Someone comes to you with a convincing case and maybe a bribe in hand or something, Um uh, he knows that the justice can be manipulated. Well, not with him, you're not getting it around this one's back. Um, with righteousness, he will judge the poor with equity, the meek of the earth and um, and he will strike down and here is the rod again, but it's a rod of his mouth. so it's it's word it's the the judgment that comes from his mouth. Um, the uh, the breath of his lips shall kill the wicked. righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And then we have a really extraordinary description of peace. Okay, so the 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 reign of this this um, this this shoot from the stump of Jesse, or what this will bring about, is just unprecedented peace. But these extreme uh, metaphors here, right? The wolf lying down with the lamb. So instead of eating the lamb, obviously, right? And you have all this stuff like that: leopard with the young goat, uh, the calf and the lion with the fattened calf and the lion's not attacking. A little child shall lead them. So come on, Mr. Lion, let's go. Um, the cow and the bear grazing together. Note, uh, too, a lot of these uh, these carnivorous animals are eating uh, not meat, meaning they're not killing, okay? The lion will eat straw like an, an ox, um, and uh, the nursing child, so the little baby coming, playing over the hole of the cobra, Uh, And then the weaned child, just a little bit older, oh, there he is with his hand on the adder's den. Um, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. And why? Why is there peace? Because the reign of this Davidic king and accompanying this reign now is the entire earth full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. And again, just think about the implications of this for, for the reign of Jesus Christ and the... And the gospel going out to all nations. So we see this in fulfillment now, and of course it will be ultimately fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth. Um, But we're not there yet, at least in terms of Isaiah. Um, Well, I guess, and in terms of where we are in history, right? This is we are seeing this in progress Um, in that day. And here it is again: the root of Jesse. Again, notice not a full tree yet; it's 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 coming. Um, who will stand as a signal for the peoples. The word signal here in this passage, it's mentioned a few times, is nas, which is um, uh, elsewhere translated banner. Like think Exodus 17, when um, the Amalekites are attacking and Moses goes up on the mountain and he has to have his arms raised up. And perhaps there we might even want to uh, make a connection in the context there, he's holding his staff, his mate, which is, as we've seen, kind of a dominant um, theme in what we've been reading. But the idea is that then they, uh, they have victory and they named the name of the place Yahweh Nissa And there's the same word, Nas. The Lord is my banner. So basically it's, um it's, it's just something that sticks out above everybody. And you can see, you can think of, so a banner, a signal, something you could see from a distance. So um, the root of Jesse shall be a banner, a signal, something you see at a distance for, for the peoples. Notice it's not just Israel, right? It's, it's, and this is the root of Jesse, you, you see him, he's there, he's clear, and go towards him. Um, of him shall the nations, notice the, again, the hope beyond just Israel, shall come and inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So um, this obviously syncs up with what we saw in chapter 2, right, with all the nations coming to Mount Zion, bleeding, beating their swords into plowshares, there you have powerful imagery of peace as well. And in that day, the Lord will extend his hand a second time to recover the remnant of his people. Um, so um, here now we see um, some pretty strong new Exodus imagery coming. So he's recovering his remnant from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar and Hamath, from the coastlands of the sea, okay? And he's bringing his people... He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel. Okay, Um, so both the nations and the banished of Israel coming to him, gathering the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Um, There will no longer be jealousy and harassment between Ephraim and Judah. Notice how many times in their history the northern and the southern kingdoms are at each other's throats. um uh, but they shall uh, but rather the 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 hostiles the enemies of God's people will um uh, they, they will be conquered will will no longer be a threat whether the Philistines or Edom or Moab or Ammon and they will obey them they will be subservient to them the Lord will utterly destroy so here we have the judgment over the two at this point in history classical enemies Of Egypt, so he will uh, of Israel rather. So Egypt, right? And we know that one. And now, um, the the he he will wave his hand over the river as well, which, as I've noted, usually denotes the Euphrates. So Assyria, okay, with his scorching breath. And so there, there's um, um, now Assyria has joined Egypt as as a a new kind of archetype or classical enemy. Uh, of God's people, right? And God will judge them. Um, and He will strike it into seven channels and lead the people across. And here notice, again, the the strong Exodus language. He will lead the people across in sandals, and there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of His people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. So as the people traveled along the uh, the way, um, coming up from Egypt into the land here now from the opposite direction. They're coming back from Assyria. And um, I want to also, I feel like I also just need to note here, again, this concept of multiple fulfillment in prophecy, because you could certainly say that, you know, as we've seen, and especially like at the end of the book of Chronicles, like let him go up under the decree of Cyrus. So the exiles returning would have had knowledge of these prophecies of Isaiah and been like, oh, here we, this must be when this is happening. But then you, then it actually happens and it's, it kind of is not nearly as impressive as one reading Isaiah would have thought. And certainly some of the things he's saying, um, you know, Assyria has been judged and, and as we'll see in chapter 13, Babylon has been judged, but now there's another power over them. And this certainly isn't the root from the stump of Jesse. Like all the nations coming to inquire of of him, and um, as a signal for all peoples, right? And and nations coming there, and, and and instead of peace, what do they find? They find like all kinds of opposition, Sanballat and all these other guys that we'll read about are are um, are, are making it a, a place of danger for them. And so th- that what that does is it kind of causes us to lift our eyes up once again towards the future, towards what God will one day do. And if you look at what he's done in Christ, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will ultimately do um, when he ushers in the when the kingdom of God is ushered in in its fullness, um, we see what Isaiah is promising in him here um, completely fulfilled. Again, think of the the image of like a glass being filled up more and more full as redemptive history. Uh, cranks on. Uh, chapter twelve is a short little chapter, um, and it's and but and but it is not disconnected from what's come before. In fact, these new Exodus themes uh, are heavy here. So, uh, this is basically talking about how God's people will praise Him in that day. Uh, I will give thanks to you, O Yahweh, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Okay, and then. Um, behold, God is my salvation, right? He has saved us. I will trust. I will not be afraid. And then we have a line that might sound familiar, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. So, number one in Exodus, uh, two two interesting things here. This is lifted directly from Exodus 15.2. Um, not not the specific way that God is referred to here but there it's Yahweh is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation so uh, and what is exodus 15 2 this is the song the song that the Israelites sing right after they pass through the sea of reeds um, and uh, the other interesting thing about this is that here we have a title for God that we only encounter twice uh, it, it occurs elsewhere in Isaiah 26 4. But it's Yah Yahweh. So it's the abbreviated form um, and then the full form. Um, Yah Yahweh is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Um, Again, if we're thinking in New Exodus terms here, we might think of the water in the wilderness as a sign of life, like we're going to be okay. And then in the second part of verse three, give thanks to Yahweh, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. And what is this? This is a this is Psalm 105, 1. And Psalm 105 should be fresh in our minds. We just did it the other day. That is a psalm that recounts the Exodus, uh, God's leading, God's God's great act of salvation. And so, um, and so it cites the first verse of this psalm, Isaiah cites the first verse of this psalm that, um, that celebrates the Exodus. Um, sing praises to Yahweh, for he has done gloriously. Let, his, let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion. Um, and not only because your fortunes are restored, not only because you are back in the land and the exile is over— but because great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. So I think all of this needs to form our kind of Christian imagination, our our way of thinking about what the reign of the Messiah will look like. All right, chapter 13 is an interesting chapter in Isaiah. And it's interesting because Isaiah, keep in mind, is a prophet in the 8th century B.C., okay, the, the latter half, the second half, but this is like the low 700s, okay, seven from like 740, I think we said, uh, uh, if we say his commissioning is in the de- the year of the death of Uzziah, I think chapter 6, then yeah, about 740 he begins to prophesy, all the way down through the um, invasion of Sennacherib in 701. But at this point, Babylon is not really a concern right it's assyria that's a concern so for all of isaiah's life um you main you 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 the 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 empire that you're concerned about is assyria babylon is just you know they're up they're down um and it's going to be um a century before uh babylon uh in in league with the medes and the scythians take down assyria and then become the dominant Empire on the world on the world scene. And yet here this chapter is a judgment about Babylon uh, on Babylon. And um, this becomes kind of part of uh, what characterizes certain parts of Isaiah. Um, I'm reminded of chapter eight where it talks about take this testimony and seal it up among my disciples okay and there i noted that that in future years you can turn to it and see the things maybe maybe the idea is like you see the judgments that god is bringing and isn't that that's it's on point right what god said will happen to you in judgment is happening to you in judgment but then you've got all these messages of hope scattered throughout and so all the, as these judeans are 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 um, pondering isaiah um the the god who is reliable enough to have foretold our doom is also foretelling our salvation and so um look to that the god who was faithful to in righteous in judging will now be faithful and righteous in salvation and so a lot of kind of at least in in my perspective because other people will look at stuff like this and and say it is very common in the study of Isaiah that maybe there were two Isaiahs maybe there were three Isaiahs you know who who saw who who are actually like you know putting this in in hindsight or something and we're just calling it Isaiah um i'm not so sure about that because i think that part of the powerful message of Isaiah is his is god's ability to foretell what is to come and um and so and and, and the only other thing i'll note here is that if you look at 2nd uh, Kings during the time of Hezekiah, um Isaiah is a character in that story and one of the things that he is concerned about in chapter 20 is that Hezekiah is making nice with envoys from Babylon. So it's it's I think in any discussion of this has to include the fact that Isaiah does um understand that Babylon will be a threat to Judah. Okay, so here is a judgment oracle. Um, on a bare hill, raise a signal. And here's that word again, banner, Nas, right? On a bare hill, raise a signal, cry aloud, wave the hand for them to enter. You know, come on in, the gates of the nobles. Uh, come on into the gates of the nobles. I myself have commanded my consecrated ones. That's the word for holy, right? Those who are set apart and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exulting ones. So the proudly exulting ones here, I believe, are Babylon, and I think what it's talking about here is the downfall of Babylon. What will eventually happen under the king Cyrus? Um, Cyrus, the 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 who is the you know the first king of the 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 Persian Empire? Well, the the the, the main conqueror, right? Cyrus the Great, who's the one who eventually will allow the exiles to return. Um, and this is in line with w- the way that Isaiah views Cyrus. In fact, later on, when he's talking about him, he'll go. God will go so far as to call him a Mashiach, an anointed one, God's own anointed one. Uh, his shepherd, he also calls him. Okay, so he, I've set apart this man to humble you, Babylon. Uh, the sound of tumult on mountains. A great multitude is coming. An uproar of kingdoms. Right, the, the the like the world is being overturned once again. Nations gathering together. Okay, because as as Cyrus progresses, he assembles more and more nations and, and incorporates them as part of his far-reaching empire, uh, as far as the Indus Valley, in fact. Um, uh, The Yahweh of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the end of the heavens. Again, all these peoples are now with Cyrus coming against Babylon. Yahweh and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. This is very much, very similar to how he spoke of Assyria against Judah, right? The, the rod in my hand. Uh, Wail for the day of Yahweh is near. That is the day of your judgment destruction from the Almighty. Um, All these hands that were mighty will now be feeble. Every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them as anguish when a woman is in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Again, the day of Yahweh comes, cruel, uh, wrath, fierce anger um, to make the land a desolation. And then in verse 10, we have like a, a very good example of, as I often note, Darkness being used as a sign, right? The sun stop; it won't won't shine. The stars will stop shining. The stars and the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. Um, I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their iniquity. And here, I think it's interesting, right? Because technically, this is an oracle against Babylon, but we can definitely see here a way in which judgment oracles kind of become like um typified right like that that the 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 concepts that are used for um uh for limited judgment like judgment just on babylon let's say um that language will get picked up later in scripture um uh to to describe god's judgment god's final judgment of the world and here like we even have hints of that direction here right the world will be punished for its evil um, I will make people uh, more rare than fine gold, mankind than the gold of Ophir. Uh, therefore, I will make the heavens tremble, the earth will be shaken out of its place, the wrath of Yahweh of hosts in the day of his anger. So again, like any nation that lifts up its hand against God and his people will endure this, will suffer this. Um, <clears throat> um, so you've got people now, like the the, the former empire of Babylon, which is fairly short-lived, I'll, 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 I'll just note that, um, all these people now are returning to their own place, they will turn to his own people, each fleeing to his own land, and whoever is found will be killed, right? Like, as they're fleeing, as they're retreating, they're being hunted down, thrust through, caught, by, will fall by the sword, people who are, are, are caught. And then you have, like, this, probably, I think, like, the most ghastly, frightening part of all of this, their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes, their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished, right? This, you know, war is terrible and uh, it's terrible even on the the innocents. Uh, per- perhaps, however, I should note that, um, not to say that Cyrus didn't go to war with people and do lots of terrible things, but, um, but when Babylon is eventually taken, it is peaceful. Uh, and so, what we have here is um we have to acknowledge that a lot of this a lot of judgment language is figurative right there's like stock imagery and stuff that that um that is described and so it's basically talking about like the the downfall of babylon um whether or not um you know these specifics actually happened when babylon falls i think is kind of besides the point um, and it talks about who is going to come up against them. Indeed, it's the Medes, the Medo-Persians, right? They're they're not they can't be bought off, bought off. They're, they don't have regard for silver or delight in gold. Um, uh, but and they but they will have no they will have no mercy. And, and certainly, there are circumstances in which you know territories held by Babylon did have to endure the attacks of of the of of Cyrus's armies. And Babylon, the glory of the kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. Um, uh, it will, and and here, it, like, it, it will never, this is what this great kingdom will be, right? It will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. No Arab will pitch its tent there. No shepherds will make their flocks lie down there. And instead, like, you go throughout the streets and what do you find? Wild animals. Um, you find uh, howling creatures, ostriches, wild goats, hyenas, jackals, and, and that's who's living there now. Um, its time is close at hand, and its days will not be prolonged. All right, let's now go to 2 Corinthians 8, 16 through 9, 5. Okay, so Paul is still talking a little bit about here about how he's uh, planning to do the collection for the saints and,, um, uh, in Jerusalem, uh, which he speaks of in some of his several of his letters, and we also find out about it in Acts. And so again, Paul is planning on coming to them. Uh, he's received good news of their repentance from Titus, and now is sending Titus back to them. So Titus is doing a lot of traveling between Paul and Corinth. So, um, and Titus is happy to do it, right? Because God has put into the heart of Titus, Paul writes the same earnest care that Paul has for for them. So like look at how Titus loves you, that's how I love you. Um he's 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 going to you of his own accord. Like I didn't have to twist his arm. He's happy to go back to you. And we're sending with him and here we find about out about two guys that are coming with Titus. Um uh, the brother who is famous among the churches for his preaching of the gospel man I'd lo- I'd love to hear what that guy how that guy preaches right like that he gets that kind of kudos from Paul um and and um not only that but now he's been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that's being ministered to us so all these other churches now maybe think uh Thessalonica think Philippi the Macedonian churches, have appointed this guy who's famous for preaching the gospel to come um, help us in this work um, for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. So we're seeking to glorify God in this, and we're seeking to show um, our love for the churches in Jerusalem. "'We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us, for we aim at what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man.'" What Paul is saying here is that, look, we're carrying a lot of money here, and uh, you need to know that trustworthy people are with are with are, are with me. So you know you have trust in me, you have trust in Titus. Several of the and I'm telling you that a bunch of the churches up here recommended this guy as a man of exceptional integrity and expe- exceptional evangelistic um, abilities. He's coming too. So like. And I think this like does give us a good principle for any Christian, for those ministries, churches, and things like that, right? That do receive gifts from people. Um, even me, you know, like I've I've um opened up a Kofi account for Journey Through Scripture. And um, I think there should be accountability and clarity that when you give the what is being what is being spent is being spent responsibly and the and um that organizations are clear with what they're spending it on, where money is going to, right? Like that's just as generosity and giving even beyond means, right is part of how we should give, part of how the givers need to think of of Christian giving. There are Christian giving standards that need to be met by those who receive those gifts. And here Paul is giving a good example to us that he's gone to he's gone to great lengths to ensure that uh, not only will what you give be safe, but you're sending it with people who aren't going to be like, hey, I heard they have good lobster in Ephesus or something. (laughs) I just made that up. Um, But uh, probably more like uh, Caesarea uh, or something like that. Um, um, Yeah, Uh, so... They, they want—Paul's going to be responsible with this. And so you got these two guys, and you've, you've, he says, with them we're also sending our brother, whom we've also often tested and found earnest in many matters. Notice earnestness is a uh, quality Paul is looking for here. Uh, and now he's even more earnest because he knows of my confidence in you. I'm so excited about what God is doing with you at Corinth that he's excited too. Um, so give proof to— before the churches of your love, your love for the Jerusalem saints, uh, and of our boasting, right? We've been telling everybody that you guys are good, you are generous, generous and you're on the same page, that we're all walking in unity together, that we're going to bless, bless our Jewish brothers and sisters. Um, it's, it's superfluous for me to go into detail about this again, right? For me to write you about the ministry for the saints. Oh, Paul, I didn't know you were concerned about uh, about length of letters and stuff, but, uh, you know, I think he's just saying, I don't have to write write it to you again, uh, for I know that you're ready to do this. I know your readiness, and again, I've been boasting about your readiness to the churches up here in Macedonia, saying that Achaia, that is you guys, have been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. So I'm sending these brothers so that my boasting to you to these Macedonian churches would, might not be empty, um, and you um, and that and I've told everybody when they get there you'll be ready. We get we can get this thing done. Um, otherwise, uh, keep in mind that I'm not exactly sure who's going to be in my traveling entourage. So if some of these uh, some uh, believers from these Macedonian churches do come with me and we all get there and you're not ready to contribute, um, you know, I'm going to have a little bit of egg on my face. We would be humiliated, and not to mention some of you, right, Uh, to say nothing of you, okay? Here, these churches are giving out of their poverty, and here you guys, and you guys have a considerable amount of wealth in your church. Uh, What's this going to say? So make sure sure that our, our confidence in you is rewarded. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you. So these guys are arriving with this letter, these three guys, Titus, the, the the gospel preaching guy, and this other guy who's been tested and found earnest. They're gonna show up, give you this letter, and uh get the gears moving on this, um, on this 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 love offering that you are making uh for the Jerusalem churches. And finally, I just want to um, note how Paul ends that uh, verse 5, right? He says, so that it may be ready as a willing gift and not as an exaction. Another important giving principle, right? That um, you, want, you want your giving, um, and we should want all Christian giving to be done, like, in full knowledge, consideration, and for the right reasons. And if it's willy-nilly—and that's not to say we should never give, um, you know, kind of on the spur of the moment— but <clears throat> you have less time to examine motives, less time to think. How much can I actually give? What is the right amount? What are what do I understand this ministry? Yeah, you know, like your your eyes are open. You you know what you're giving to, and you, you've considered and thought it through. And and you can do all that if you've taken your time and been responsible ahead of time and thought these things out, as opposed to Paul being like, I'm here. Wait, you guys don't have anything? All right, like. Wh- well, bring what you can, bring me what you can. You know, like the one is more ordered and um, a higher quality gift than that which may be given spontaneously. All right, everybody, thanks for joining me today. As always, I look forward to being with you tomorrow. And until then, keep reading scripture, take care, and bye-bye.